The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead on The Exchange, the U.S. officially announcing a ban on Russian oil. Crude is well down from those session highs of close to $130 a barrel. But we'll look at why analysts think prices have to stay around these levels, if not spike higher, for quite some time. All of this complicating matters for the Fed ahead of next week's meeting. We'll talk to the man who was one of the first to call for seven rate hikes this year. Is he sticking to that forecast? Plus, an Apple event about to kick off. We're expecting to hear about a lower-cost iPhone. But is now still the time to try and capitalize on pent-up global demand? We'll bring you all the news as it happens this hour. But let's start with Dom Chu and the big market numbers, Dom. So the big market numbers are about a big reversal that we've seen intraday. Now, it could be because there are some tensions easing, perhaps. There could be some speculation, a real-time handicapping, if you will, of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine between them and Russia. But what we can tell you is at the lows of the session, the Dow was down 239 points at the lows of the session. Now we are up 500 near the highs of the session. That gives you an idea of the range so far. So a 700-point range for the Dow Industrials today. The S&P 500 up 1.5%, similar percentage move to the Dow, 42.62 the last trade. There, The Nasdaq Composite up 2%. The outperformer there, 285 points to the upside. One of the places that you are seeing that sharp reversal A sky-high area of the market that is now kind of reversed course throughout the course of the day, that's the energy sector. We've seen oil prices come off of their highs in the wake of that President Biden announcement of the ban of Russian U.S. or or Russia's ban, ban of Russian imports for oil. You see the energy sector spider just around that noontime today is when we saw that real dip below for the highs of the session down towards where we are now. By the way, energy, not the only place that the reversals happened. Check out gold prices and wheat prices, believe it or not, went limit down at one point in trading today. So a lot of that unwind happening. And then check out what's happening with Enphase Energy, Solar Edge, Sun Power, Sun Run, the Invesco ETF that tracks many of these solar companies. They're all up massively today. A lot of this is this notion that as oil prices continue to go higher, if this is a regime, if you will, of higher prices over the longer term, could there be more demand for those alternative energy types? Watch those solar names Kelly, they are surging and trading right now, although I will point out if you look at a one-year chart, they are all well off their highs for the year. Kel, back over to you. Absolutely. Dom, thank you very much, Dom Chu. Crude oil prices surging towards the intraday highs yesterday of $130 a barrel, then taking a breather after the president officially announced a ban on Russian oil imports. Here's what President Biden said moments ago about how the U.S. plans to fill the gap. The United States produces far more oil domestically than all of European, all the European countries combined. In fact, we're a net exporter of energy. So we can take this step when others cannot. My next guest says the only things that can bring prices down now are removing sanctions or having a recession induced by demand destruction. Joining me now is Bob McNally, founder and president of the Rapidan Energy Group and a former energy advisor to President George W. Bush. Bob, it's good to have you here. Does demand destruction have to involve a recession? I'm afraid it does. You know, oil demand is the lifeblood of a modern economy. It's not a discretionary good. It's not movie tickets or cigars that we can just go without if they get pricey. 
Uh, so it's 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 required for us to get to work. It's required for factories to work and so forth. So these types of energy shocks usually are at the scene of every recession. And I'm afraid it might have to be the same way again. Although even the last big one in 2008 happened as the financial crisis was already in motion. There were a lot of things that really pulled down the economy. And I just wonder if this time's different because you have consumers with a lot more sort of pent up spending power. Uh, gas prices are not anywhere near where they were in 2008 in real terms. And so are we necessarily going to see something that's 2% of household spending send the consumer into a recession? Well, we're going to find out, I'm afraid. We may have to go to 3 or 4%. At Rapid Ann, we expect uh, crude oil prices to start causing macroeconomic pain around $150 a barrel. So we have a ways to go. But, you know, as you know well, we're coming out of uh, COVID. Uh, central banks are raising rates. We have a huge debt burden, all kinds of uncertainty. So uh, it's not like it's a smooth sailing economy, it, 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 you know, that we're in which we're facing these kind of energy price increases. Yeah. And I know that it isn't, you know, sort of your job to, to make the policy response, but there has been some talk about how the U.S. has seen a tool for lowering our energy usage. It was called stay at home during the worst of COVID. The irony is nobody wants to do that again. So I'm curious what you think the message should be to Americans who are facing sticker shock. Should it be to try to use less or should it be no, hey, get out there. We're reopening. Everyone's excited to travel and drive and see people again. It's a, a very difficult time for this all to be coming to a head. You know, it's a very difficult time, and I'm glad I'm not in the White House right now. I was there after 9-11. I've been there for crises and high oil prices. There's really no good message at this point. Wear a sweater, don't drive. That, that's not going to work. No, America has to reopen after COVID. What I think we have to do, though, the Biden administration has to be more successful at convincing folks that they're not out to crater Russian oil exports, especially. Russia's the largest crude oil and product exporter in the world. Without those exports, as long as there's a fear, and that's the issue here, is a fear that we're going to go and try and block all those exports, the economy is heading towards a recession. So I don't know that we need messages for the American people so much as leadership in the White House. So let's run through the numbers for a second. My understanding, there's about six million barrels a day of Russian oil, seaborne oil and exports and that sort of thing that are potentially at risk here. Although, again, this is just the U.S. move. So how much needs to come online to replace those Russian barrels right now? And where's that going to come from? Right. So really, Russia exports almost 8 million barrels a day, about 5 million barrels a day of crude oil, and then almost 3 million barrels a day of refined product. But let's just talk about crude oil. We have a 5 million barrel a day problem. And a good chunk of that is starting to stop already, even though the Biden administration doesn't want to see that happen. Shippers, especially at the seaports, they're not picking up the Russian crude. But let's just talk about offsets. 5 million barrels a day is the problem. Inventories are low, so we're not going to draw those down much more. OPEC Plus could probably drop in half of that, mm -hmm. mainly in Saudi Arabia and UAE, but they're not doing that, or they're not doing it at a fast enough speed. You sign an Iran deal, maybe you get another million barrels a day in a few months starting after that. That, that would help. Venezuela, a couple few hundred thousand barrels a day in a few months if you ease sanctions. So with inventories low, supply demand tight, the problem is you have a 5 million barrel a day risk and you don't have 5 million barrels a day to quickly bring on to offset that. That's why prices have to do their terrible work yeah. and, uh, and enforce consumption. Very well Define. said. And as people have pointed out, really, China could help a lot here. If they pick up those Russian barrels, then at least they won't be competing with the rest of the world for the remainder of that demand. So let me ask you the most politically loaded question here, but the most important one for U.S. consumers 
What can be done to rapidly increase U.S. oil production, given the political realities of this administration? Like the other day in the journal, there was a, a, a piece from a bunch of Alaskans saying, look, we want to do our part to help, but the permitting process has been a nightmare, the envi environmental review and so forth. You know, Keystone, obviously we know what happened with that, and now we face a, a need to get this going quickly. Are there any near-term things that can be done politically to get oil flowing? Absolutely. The Biden administration just needs to go to the Obama-Biden archives and pull up all of the above. Uh, all energies uh, can be used, uh, oil and gas being bridges to a clean fuel future. We need to rescind the Keystone Pipeline cancellation, welcome and open new infrastructure permitting, tell the IEA to stop calling for a ban on new investment. For some reason, the administration has adopted a very anti-oil and gas uh, posture, even relative to the Obama-Biden administration. We should be open to exports and not even threaten to, to ban exports. So if we remove these above-ground risks and you see investors come back and the economics come back, you will see the U.S. oil investor and worker respond. You can bet on that. Although finally, before we go here, I think it was Goldman who ran the numbers recently because the economy is, is so tight and we're already doing what we can produce in the oil patch. They were saying uh, oil, U.S. oil producers would have to increase their capex by 45 percent from this year to next year in order to try to just pump an extra, let's say, half a million barrels a day. So even if we saw, you know, sort of political appetite, how quickly could we realistically increase production? I think you're looking at real increases probably next year. That's right. When we talk to our shale oil clients, you cannot find West uh, uh, truck drivers in West Texas. You can't find equipment. You can't find service operators, even at these prices. So let's be realistic. You have to have everything fall into place, but you're still talking about next year before I think you see you realize positive net production growth over what we're going to do. We're going to do 700,000 barrels a day this year. Don't get me wrong. Shale oil is going to come back this year, but to keep that going into next year and the year after, that's what we're talking about. For that, you need these changes. Yeah, it's a difficult inflationary environment, even for them. A lot of challenges, Bob. Uh, we appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Bob McNally. Quick programming note. Be sure to catch our special CNBC program tonight at 6 Eastern. Oil Shock, hosted by Brian Sullivan and featuring the CEOs of Occidental, Pioneer, and Williams Companies. Again, that's tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. Now, if we are going into a recession, it would be a very strange one, says my next guest. That's because industrial activity still remains super strong. Joining me now is Chris Senek. He's chief investment strategist at Wolf Research. Also with us is Jason Brady, president and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management. Welcome to both of you. And Chris, please make this point because I understand why we all you know, are concerned about the recession risk. But at the same time, this is a strong economy that to some extent can absorb the higher prices. Yeah, hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. So it, we're in a very unusual period of time, to not state the obvious. Um, you have supply shortages throughout the economy, whether it's in housing, whether it's in autos, whether it's in semiconductors or many other areas. At the same time, higher prices at the pump are starting to hit consumers, not only on the lower end side, but also on the higher end side, apart from the wealth effect that lower stock prices does as well. And so ISM, which is a traditional indicator of industrial activity we think could stay very strong and elevated as these supply chain issues work themselves out over the next six to 12 months, while consumer confidence and consumer spending takes a bit of a breather. Yeah, well, believe me, we're going to see that uh, play out. Chris, real quickly before I move on to Jason, what is what are the investment implications of what you're saying here? The investment implications are is that you have to steer portfolio positioning into commodity energy related parts of the market, which is not something that 
investors have done in quite some period of time. You have to go back to 07 or, or the big commodity bull cycle that was led by China previously uh, and avoid discretionary stocks, avoid tech stocks, which investors have come to love you know, over the past 12 years. I think the action is going to be in different parts of the market going forward. And a lot of investors still aren't positioned that way. And I saw a note from Deutsche Bank as well this morning, kind of pointing out just how strong commodities have been, and they think we're still early cycle. Jason, your perspective on this is a little different, at least in terms of the investing implications. You still like some of the big names like Visa, J.P. Morgan, and Tencent. Uh, how do you think people should be positioned right now? So it's obviously we're in an inflationary environment, and actually our prior guest talking about uh, oil shortages indicated that even in that part of the of the market. Uh, they're seeing labor shortages, which are going to continue to drive up costs, which, again, does actually typically happen in uh, commodity cycles. So for us, we're, we, we're very leery of the effect of higher rates um, across markets. Uh, I would agree with Chris that uh, the tech sector might be more exposed to that, at least from a sentiment standpoint. Uh, but ultimately, we're really interested in, in making sure we're investing in a stronger consumer in the United States. And so financials are good to us. And J.P. Morgan, exactly, is, is the name that we're suggesting. So let's highlight that, Jason. You're you're investing in a stronger consumer in an environment where we're talking about $130 oil. Why doesn't that phase you more? Well, I, you pointed out uh, that actually the real cost of commodities uh, for consumers is actually not at a terrifically high level. Uh, but more to the point, for me, I, I've been a fixed income investor for a really long time. I look at the balance sheet first. And the consumer's balance sheet looks really good. It's actually corporate balance sheets and government balance sheets that are more challenged. So hmm. uh, the consumer is entering this slowdown in a good, a good place. Chris, do you want to respond to that, especially as it relates to whether there are parts of the stock market that would still do pretty well in this environment? Well, I think clearly you have to have a quality bias. You have to look at leverage ratios again and not invest in high leverage, lower quality companies. Um, we think if we got out of the stagflation geopolitical risk, um, that we're in, that regional banks and banks in particular can do well, because we'll kind of go back to the environment we're in a few weeks ago. And so I agree with the guest points on, on that, that financials look quite attractive here. Um, the outcome has become very bifurcated. You know, we're either going to have a recession or some resolution here. Or inflation, Chris? I mean, is that possible that this is still more of an inflationary problem than not? Well, we've been in the view that we're in a stagflationary environment. That's the outcome of this. We're in the middle of a flare-up, if you will. We'll continue to see flare-ups over the course of, of time. And if you think about what's happened over the last two weeks from an economic point of view, you have higher structural inflation emanating from this, along with slower growth. I mean, growth has to slow down. Uh, every dollar change in the price of gas at the pump is $150 billion annualized that comes out of consumers' pockets. And I don't think there's enough excess savings for a lot of consumers to offset that if these prices are sustained. So we have to have a quick resolution to the Ukraine-Russian conflict um, for, I think, us to avert a real strong slowdown here. And Jason, a final word on that. Um, where do you see the consumer balance sheet starting to really come under strain? Today, where the consumer is, is struggling is actually at the lower end of the income spectrum, especially uh, where the, the consumption baskets more heavily with food and energy. Uh, but by and large, if you're looking at bank earnings and the quality of those balance sheets, they're quite strong in the consumer sector. So while there is additional pressure, no doubt about it, uh, it's kind of the cleanest dirty shirt in this environment. <laughs> 
we'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you both today. Chris Senek and Jason Brady with some different approaches here to the investment landscape. Coming up, Apple holding its first launch event this year. Holding it right now, in fact, and they're expected to make a big bet on the global consumer. We're going to bring you all the headlines from CEO Tim Cook this hour, including details on a brand new, cheaper iPhone that we're expected to get. Plus, ThreadUp shares are staging a big rebound, just like the rest of the market. They hit an all-time low earlier, despite the company reporting a wider-than-expected loss, giving disappointing guidance they have now turned around. We'll ask the CEO about the path to profitability and the impact of inflation. And as we head to break, let's take a quick check on markets. Dow's up 536. We're near session highs. It's been a 700-point turnaround. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're looking at shares of Apple up a percent and a half this afternoon as their first launch event of the year is underway. Here's CEO Tim Cook taking the virtual stage once again, hyping up the new iPhone SE. It's the cheaper one. It features a similar design to the iPhone 8, but is 5G enabled and has a lot lower price tag aimed at the global consumer, perhaps. CNBC tech correspondent Steve Kovac is here with the headlines so far and what else we should expect, Steve. Yeah, that's right, Kelly. It is the iPhone SE, just as we expected. Um, two surprises here, though. Um, $429. That's a $30 uh, price increase over the last iPhone SE. A lot of people were uh, curious about how they would price this thing and go after that lower end of the market where they've been losing market share over the last two years. And it's going to be really interesting to see if 5G is enough to convince people to fork over that extra 30 bucks over the last model. And on top of that, one other surprise, a deal with the Major League Baseball to air two exclusive baseball games every Friday night on Apple TV Plus if you're a subscriber. So that's a big uh, first sports deal for Apple and a sports rights deal for Apple. That's really interesting, too. So that was long rumored. Uh, Maybe we could even say long expected. But today it is the case that for people who want to watch those certain games, I mean, I guess maybe they could see them if if it's in their local market. But otherwise, they would have to have Apple TV in order to stream them. 
That's right. And it's not just the Apple TV box. Keep in mind, Apple TV Plus, the service is available in smart TVs, Roku's, Amazon, you name it. So it's going to be everywhere. If you have a device, you can still watch it and stream it and subscribe. How important, Steve, are people saying that this cheaper iPhone is, which normally would be margin dilutive? I don't know if it is in this case, but how important is that for Apple to have a handset that they think the global consumer will take them up on? Yeah, it's super important, especially in emerging markets, as we already know. But even before now, the iPhone SE line has been too expensive for some of those markets. So it's going to be really interesting to see if even increasing the price on that for whatever reason it was, whether it's margins or the 5G or whatever it is, it's going to be interesting to see if people will still be able to go for that or if it's going to keep people from switching from Android. All right, Steve, for now, thank you. Thanks, Steve Kovac, good to see you. Let's turn and get more reaction now from Amit Daryanani. He's a fundamental research analyst at Evercore ISI. Amit, it's good to have you. I think, what is 429 is the price point? Is that a little high? It's only higher than the 399 they had, uh, I guess, the last time around, right? But uh, it's about an 8% uplift. You know, I, I, I would argue it's not terribly different than what they've been doing with their entire product launch the last six, nine months. They've slowly been creeping up the ASPs. Uh, it is, you know, Steve talked about 5G, you know, the 5G bill of material is somewhat higher. Uh, I suspect that is really what's driving a lot of these decisions on their part. Uh, but it's still going to be the most attractive entry point in the iPhone lineup out there. What do you make of Apple stock right now, down 7% over the past week, but positive at least this afternoon? Yeah, and, you know, uh, it, it's, by the well, way, it's, it's, I think it's outperformed the broader markets and the large cap tech peers rather nicely as well. Uh, you know, the macro has been a little volatile, to say the least, right? Uh, what, what I would say is if this was a normal year, or if, if there is one of those years ever, uh, this would be the year you should be attracted and on Apple because of a string of new products that are going to come out, right? iPhone 14 that comes out is kind of the tick of the TikTok cycle. It should be very material. You have an AR, VR headset that we think will come out by the end of the year. And then you're going to have a very, I think, sizable capital allocation update in April when they report their earnings as well. So these are things generally you want to be more positively biased to Apple versus not. Uh, we think the stock continues to do well. The stock should work on the 2 to 10 price point, and that you should get good demand tailwinds for the rest of the year. And they made a point of saying that the iPhone SE they just introduced will include 5G, but as Joanna Stern reiterated this morning, she's not sure that's really moving the needle for anybody at this point. Yeah, you know, I, I have the latest, greatest iPhone. I'm not sure if uh, I use 5G functionality the way I should, or you know, <laughs> I'm not sure what the functionality is, right? Uh, I can download Netflix faster, I guess. Maybe that's the only upside I've seen. My kids get less irritated. Uh, but no, you're right. I, I think broadly, uh, you are searching, we are all searching for that killer app that can drive iPhone demand higher with the 5G upgrade cycle, right? Or with the 5G deployment. You haven't quite seen it yet, but that doesn't preclude the reality that iPhones are about four years old in the marketplace. Most consumers, the utilization rate of the iPhones has gone up dramatically through the pandemic which means any phone that comes out, 5G or not, would have a lot of end demand right now. Your price target is 210. What are the biggest headwinds for Apple to reach that target? Uh, is it rates? Is it you know supply chain, global consumer weakness at the very time they're trying to target that? Yeah, you know, I, I, well, actually, the, the biggest worry is the, is the macro situation, right? And does that inevitably end up, does that result in having some degree of a recession, if you may, and what happens to high consumer purchasing patterns through a recessionary environment, right? I would say that's one thing I worry about. The second thing I'd say we worry about, and this is a multiple curtailment factor, is the regulatory environment, right? Uh, big tech, Apple especially, is in the crosshairs. What happens over there and the magnitude of that could impede the multiples. I'd say macro recession, 
to high-end demand and regula regulatory environment are the two things that could prevent us to see the stock at 210. So just real quickly then, how excited do you get when they're announcing this new iPad Air and it's going to have 5G? You know, how big a product is that for Apple? You know, um, I think iPhone SE is an interesting product, right? We think they could sell 30, 35 million units, which, you know, at the ASPs they have could be worth 10 to $15 billion, right? In the grand scheme of things, it's 4 or 5% of the revenue numbers, right? Uh, the iPad, the Macs are, I, you know, I, so I would actually take a, a different perspective. I think it's a very interesting time to provide a refreshed lineup of iPads and Macs, especially as companies start to go back to their office and realize hmm. their hardware is three years old and too outdated. This actually may be a great time for them to cross that entry point. That is a great point. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, the equipment's just been sitting here idle. A time for a refresh, right? Exactly. And Apple has all the new products ready to go by now. How convenient. Amit, thank you so much for your time today. It's good to see you. Thank Amit you. Darianani joining us from Evercore ISI. Still ahead, EV makers are feeling the pain at the plug thanks to a shortage of some key components like nickel right now. Nickel suspended for trading today after jumping above $100,000 a ton. Look at that chart. We'll have more on the impact there. Plus, he was the first to call for seven rate hikes before inflation got really hot. Since then, a war has been added to the Fed's picture. So is he sticking with this call? Ethan Harris, Bank of America's global economist, joins us coming up on The Exchange. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Welcome back. We have some more breaking news on the Russian oil ban. Straight to Kayla Tausche for the details. Kayla? Kelly, the White House holding a briefing to provide some clarity on exactly how this Russian energy ban is going to work in practice now that has, it has been made official. A senior administration official just a few moments ago uh, noting that this ban will apply to new imports of Russian oil, new contracts that are getting inked, and that the U.S. government will allow a 45-day wind-down period for existing contracts or shipments that are on the water. The administration official said that there are discussions ongoing with G7 allies and allies outside the G7 about further actions that can be taken, though not commenting specifically on whether we could see uh, another similar action coming out of Japan, ha as has been reported. The senior administration official also noting that uh, there are still considerations for future reserve releases from emergency reserves in the U.S. and in other countries as a way to offset rising prices. And no comment, Kelly, on exactly when we could see prices begin to recede again. 
Kelly. All right, Kayla, thank you. We will have more on where those Russian shipments are in just a moment. Meantime, the markets are showing some nice turnaround here this afternoon, which did coincide with oil coming off the boil after the president's announcement. Maybe a little bit of sell the fact news there. And here the Dow is up 359 points, although we're already about 200 points off the highs. Let's get to Bob Bassani. He's at the New York Stock Exchange. It's been tough keeping up with these markets, Bob. <laughs> yeah, and what there's two facts we know. There's some kind of negotiations or discussions going on between the Ukraine and Russia. They're vague. We don't know what, exactly what's going on. And we also know the market's dramatically oversold. I want to show you the S&P 500 and what happened, because we moved about 70 points right after noon Eastern time. There were some vague headlines out of Agency France Press, which is the uh, French uh, pr uh, press agency that said uh, that there, the Zelensky was no longer insisting on Ukrainian membership in NATO. He had made these comments to uh, ABC News the prior night, of course, so it wasn't necessarily news, but there were some vague discussions about willingness to compromise on separatist-controlled areas. The bottom line is we don't know exactly what's going on. There are negotiations. What we do know is the market is dramatically oversold. Look at that 70-point move that we saw uh, in the S&P 500 right here, just moving right up. And you can see we're coming off uh, of those highs right now. Elsewhere, if you look at the stock market, even before these vague headlines, we were trying to rally. So take a look at the airlines. All of them new lows, American uh, including 52-week lows. But if you look here, we went from 13 to about 14. But already prior to this move here, we saw the market trying to rally. This is dramatically oversold. We're at 52-week lows. And, of course, that move up uh, also helped uh, overall for what we were doing. Now, also, if you want to look at some other stocks like Boeing, another stock, 52-week low this morning, was 172 at the low this morning here. And there you see, trying to rally here and then moving right up here. So already before this news, the market was so oversold, it was already trying to bounce without the news. And then we saw a move up. Um, same thing in the opposite direction with the energy stocks. All the oil service names, uh, OIH, which is a big oil service company and the oil service ETF. Uh, Schlumberger is in that. If you look at Schlumberger, same situation went from the opposite direction. All up in the morning, all the oil service names up. And then when these vague reports came out, going from about $46 to $43. The point here, Kelly, is we don't know exactly what's going on in terms of these negotiations, but the market is so oversold that it'll snap even on vague reports or reports that might have even happened yesterday. Sometimes the markets aren't perfectly efficient. They go on whatever vague information they have, and not all the information is equally distributed. Sometimes people find out about something later, didn't know it, and act on it. If enough people do it, you get a move in the market. Kelly, and back we've to had you. a lot of those today. Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. McDonald's is temporarily closing all 850 of its restaurants in Russia. The company says that the conflict in Ukraine has caused unspeakable suffering to innocent people. McDonald's has 62,000 employees in Russia. In Ukraine, efforts to evacuate civilians from the port city of Mariupol are in jeopardy following reports of news shelling by Russian forces. Mariupol has been without water, heat and phone service for days. And on the news tonight, how Ukrainians are fighting back and how Western allies are ramping up their support. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. A top U.S. intelligence official telling Congress that Russia underestimated the strength of Ukraine's resistance. The director of national intelligence estimates that the invasion has caused thousands of Russian casualties. He says that Putin is still determined, however, to dominate and control Ukraine. And in Minneapolis, teachers have gone on strike for better pay and smaller class sizes. Classes have been paused for some 29,000 students. 
Neighboring St. Paul narrowly avoided a strike after teachers and administrators struck a tentative deal late last night. Wow. Kelly? All right, Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. Coming up, shares of ThreadUp are trying to recover after a huge move lower on the back of week earnings, disappointing revenue, weak guidance, and profit margin pressure. We'll speak with the CEO as the shares are 40% off their yearly high. That's ahead. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of ThreadUp reversing higher. They're up almost 4% right now after they initially dropped on a wider-than-expected loss and weak first quarter guidance. Revenues did beat, though. Active buyers also rose 36% from the next uh, previous year. Uh, joining me now to discuss these results in a first on CNBC interview is James Reinhardt. He is the CEO of ThreadUp, along with our own Courtney Reagan, who is one of those active users. I am. I am. James, thank you so much for being here with us today. Really appreciate it. Kelly ran through some of those stats about the stock. And on the call, both you and the CFO really took time to sort of talk about the scrutiny that younger companies get when it comes to capital allocation. You took time to go through your competitive advantages. Do you feel like your stock has been unfairly beaten up. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, guys. Um, yeah, I think a little bit. Look, I mean, the business grew 68% in the fourth quarter, uh, continued to show growth in all those key metrics. So I think a little bit is investors making sure that they understand the story over the next year. Uh, we told investors last quarter that it was going to be a heavy investment in the first half of the year to continue to build out our moat. And so I think some of that, Courtney, is investors you know, digesting that news, making sense of our remarks. And I think now you can see the rebound in the stock reflects investors get it. They understand those investments and how that generates long-term profitability. James, it's Kelly here. Just a quick question, if you could give us some clarity on the consumer right now. Are you experiencing still strength? Are they taking, I don't know if you guys are experiencing any price increases overall. Um, are you seeing any signs of a slowdown? You know, what on the front lines, what, do you, what would you say about the U.S. consumer as gasoline prices spike? Yeah, I mean, it, look, it's a rapidly changing environment. I think the consumer is softening, um, you know, in a, in a broader sense. Um, but I also think you're dealing with, you know, stimulus from last March, which consumers are lapping. Um, but everything is going up. And I think, you know, great businesses have to figure out, you know, what do they pass on to the consumer versus what, the, what do they stomach uh, in the near term? And I think we're having those conversations every day uh, such that we can build the biggest uh, and most successful long-term business. And I think that's that's what uh, great companies do is they figure out how to navigate these very difficult times. And I think that's what we're doing. James, as a follow on to Kelly's question in the third quarter, you talked about taking down your average pricing. We obviously are now in uh, a period of very high inflation overall in the economy. So where does that leave your pricing for the end consumer as you're trying to meet consumers demands in this challenging environment? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the rub is we, we believe there's opportunity to carve out more, more, more share of customers uh, in the near term. Uh, but there's also the reality that the prices have gone up even since that last call, Courtney. So I think we're trying to figure out uh, whether it's freight, uh, logistics, labor, you know, where is it that you can pass on uh, those costs to the consumer? But look, I live in California. Gas is headed to six dollars a gallon. Uh, it's, it's tough out there. But look, I think there's going to be some stability in the back half of the year. We're thinking about our business having uh, you know, stability in the back half of the year around, around our unit economics. And we just have to get through this very difficult time for the consumer. Uh, but, but we like the long-term macro uh, environment for, for resale broadly, which is going to be uh, growing really rapidly. 
James, your EBITDA losses are getting smaller at four, down 14% from down 28% a year ago. But of course, as you mentioned on the call, investors are getting impatient. They want a path to profitability. You said you want to drive sustainable growth and profits over time to get there. What is that time? How long until there's no more losses and we're reporting profits? Yeah, look, I, I don't think we're going to uh, put a put a quarter on the board. Um, I think the investments we're making in the first half of the year will really generate leverage uh, as we move into the back half of the year and into, into 2023. We noted on the call no new infrastructure investments uh, until 2025. So if you think about it, we're going to be leveraging all of the assets we've built uh, over the last few years and this year over the next few years. And so you should see pretty significant leverage from the business as you get into 2023. Um, but of course, we want to make sure the investments we're making now uh, drive uh, those growth rates and profitability as we get into 23 and 24 uh, and not get too caught in sort of these, the near-term micro uh, of investor sentiment. Because I think that's where businesses go wrong is they make these short-term uh, decisions that ultimately impact the long-term opportunity. James, very quickly before we let you go, we know that you acquired the European Remix resale business. You have operations in Bulgaria. I believe you have a team in Ukraine. Can you just very quickly tell us what's going on with your European operations? Yeah, I mean, my heart goes out. We, we do have close to 50 teammates in the Ukraine. Many of them have been able to leave, but some are still there. That's a situation we're monitoring. Uh, our business in Bulgaria operates in nine countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, we don't operate in the Ukraine from a selling or sourcing perspective. So I think we're, we're insulated from that impact in, in both Ukraine and Russia. But, you know, consumer sentiment is something we have to watch uh, in those markets if this uh, war continues. Um, so something we're keeping an eye on and uh, most importantly, trying to keep our folks safe in the Ukraine. I think that's that's where my head is at. Wow. James, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. James Reinhardt, CEO of ThreadUp. Courtney, thank you as well. Yeah, Good thanks to have for having you here. me. It's nice to be here. Very nice. I can almost touch you, but we're <laughs> yeah. not quite that close. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> Up next, a senior White House official clarifying President Biden's ban on Russian oil imports, saying that whatever is on its way to the U.S. right now won't be impacted. We have the details, where the ships are, and what it means for the buyers of this crude. That's next. Welcome back. President Biden announcing a ban on Russian oil that's leaving some shipments in limbo that were already on their way here. Here with more on how this is playing out in real time, CNBC senior editor Lorianne LaRocco, you just got off the phone. Kayla just told us that the stuff that's on its way will still be able to take in. Now we face this 45-day wind-down period. What can you tell us? Well, we currently have eight vessels that are out on the water. We have two of them that are anchored, and I just found out now that one of them is being discharged, meaning that the fuel is being unloaded over at the Phillips 66 uh, area over in New York City. So, in New York City? Yeah, over in New York Harbor. So we can take these tankers in. They can be processed. Consumers will still be using them. But then begins the process of winding down and getting off of these barrels. Who are the buyers of these imports? Sure. So I'm sorry, their exports are imports. Exactly. So the buyers are PBF Energy. They have two tankers that are coming in. One has been anchored off of Philadelphia for well over a week. They also have another uh, product coming in in a week, a week or two. And then Valero, they have their own tanker coming in in the coming weeks as well. So those are the main buyers. And what does it mean for all of these importers to now have to, how, how do they respond? You know, that's the that's the billion dollar question. It's like, do you really want this oil? I mean, we have seen the outcry. We have seen the call for bans. So while, yes, they are able to bring the product in, do they really want to?
Right, exactly. If they think that there's another way to get the supply, what are they, you know, that's the million dollar question for the whole market, though. And everyone's watching these vessels. I read a note this morning about Chinese demand being able to at least take the Russian barrels. And they said, even if we redirect all of those shipments from Russia east to China, that's the equivalent of taking like 90 million barrels out of the market. You know, it, because there's a time lag. It takes longer to go that way than the, than the normal way. There's going to be a lot of disruption from all of this. Oh, definitely. But if they did an immediate ban, so to speak, it would have been a massive shock to our market because these are incoming TEUs, if you will, like that, you know, that they need. And the only thing is that, you know, these vessels, if they wanted to, if Valero and PBF Energy wanted to sell this oil because they own it, either you take it or you sell it. And if they sell it, it's going to be at a massive discount. Massive. And maybe that's why oil is behaving a little bit better is because the details of this mean it's not effective today. In fact, you know, we have, they have a 45-day work-in work period. Exactly. So it doesn't, it, it, it's not great for the overall supply, but it's not an immediate shock. All right, Lorianne, glad you're here. Thank you so much, Lorianne LaRocco. Still ahead, the wild spike in nickel prices this week could have a big impact on the cost of electric vehicles. How much pain could be at the plug? That's next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Nickel hitting a historic high earlier today. That price spike could have a huge impact on electric vehicles. Philip Bo is here with more on that. Phil? Chart of the day. Take a, look, take a look at nickel because this chart says it all in terms of what we've seen. The forward contract, they've stopped trading it in London. Why? We saw a 75% jump yesterday and this morning it continued going up and they finally said, uh-uh, stop. We're not going to trade this because it's getting too wacky. And the implication here for the automakers is because nickel is so important for the development of EV battery cells as well as battery packs. And so when you look at the demand that is expected in terms of electric vehicles, the global sales, this is just one forecast here. By some estimates, it will be 42% of the global sales potentially by 2030. But that's if you have the supply that's there. This raises the question for automakers like General Motors, which is, has the Hummer EV in production. Deliveries have already begun. This is just one of several EVs that GM will be rolling out over the next several years. They are, the question is, do they have the resources, the contracts locked in for things like nickel? And this morning we talked to Mary Barra. She was here in the headquarters, and we put the question to her point blank. Are you confident that you will have all the nickel you need to build all the EVs you plan on building? Here's what she had to say. That's our focus to make we're sure we're secure to achieve the EV plan that we have, which is a pretty aggressive rollout and a complete portfolio of electric vehicles, because that's what customers have told us they want. We pressed her on this. She said, we have the contracts. We will be ready to make the EVs that we have already targeted. The reason this is coming up is because we heard from Adam Jonas yesterday, and I've heard from other analysts today, and, and almost all of them say the same thing, which is, I'm not sure where the auto industry is going to get all the nickel that it's talking about. Right. Somebody is going to be left holding the bag, or not necessarily holding the bag, but they're going to have to bring, bring down their estimates. At some point, they're going to say, well, we thought we were going to build a million EVs. It turns out we're only going to build... 500,000. And this is the analogous, but also the issue for the EV market in general right now is that it's never been a demand problem. It's a supply problem. Correct. It was chips. It still is. It was batteries and other components. Like, and this is just adding to that situation and adding to consumers' possibly willingness to want to buy and desire to want to buy. So they're going to have to move heaven and earth to get all these vehicles produced. And it's going to be a lumpy 
uptake when it comes to EV sales. Yes, but it's still, you know, it's just the latest. They must be losing their minds every time they turn around. It's something else. And now this now nickel. Right. Who would have thought this six months ago? Absolutely. Pretty crazy. Phil, thank you very much. Bill Abo. Coming up, the Fed meeting kicks off one week from today. The first on the street to up their target to seven rate hikes is sticking with that despite the Ukraine war. B of A's Ethan Harris on the Fed's dilemma next. Welcome back, everybody. The Dow's already given up most of its gains this afternoon. And with everything going on, we're just a week away from the next Fed meeting. And my next guest was one of the first to call for seven rate hikes, one per meeting this year. And he's sticking with it despite the ongoing uncertainty. Joining me now is Ethan Harris, head of global economics research at Bank of America Securities. Ethan, it's great to see you again. So many people are saying, you know what, let's just dial it back to four or five just to be safe. What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, the, the Fed's a bit behind the curve here and they need to get moving. And remember, an oil shock doesn't really help the Fed out. It, it kind of creates, uh, puts them between a rock and a hard place. Uh, on the one hand, it weakens growth. On the other hand, it adds to inflation. And so it really doesn't prevent them from following the path they were on to begin with. Um, I think the markets have been a little too focused on the, the growth picture and are not paying enough attention to the fact that there really is a serious inflation problem. I think people are also looking to the financial markets, Ethan, and going, wait a minute, the stocks are down and the VIX is up, and this is rarely the setup that they like to start tightening into. Yeah, the thing about it, the waiting now is that um, you could have made an argument that the Fed should have started hiking last fall, and now they've finally agreed and are setting the markets up for a steady diet of rate hikes, it'd be kind of odd to kind of admit that you really are, you do need to normalize and and then not to even do that one small hike. Uh, Remember, they're not trying to hurt the economy and one hike isn't going to hurt the economy. It's about a process of gradually getting back to normal putting the funds rate at a place where it should have been probably, we should already be on that path right now. Our guest earlier this hour, not an economist, but just said, given what's happened with the oil price, he thinks a recession is and, and demand destruction are kind of the only ways to rebalance that market. What would your response as an economist be to that? I disagree. I mean, this is a, this is a serious shock. Um, it, for the U.S., it hits an economy that's got strong momentum, a lot of savings in the household sector where they can, at least for middle and upper income families, can handle the higher prices. It is tough on low income families, no question about it. Uh, but there's a, a pretty strong economy here. Um, I don't think this is a big enough shock to cause a recession. I think we would need kind of a worst case scenario with a, you know, a major, major shock to the oil markets to start talking about a recession. Yeah. And that means that actually it would take a lot higher oil price for demand destruction to set in. Right. And that's why people still are worried about a continued move higher. What about those who say, well, 2008 sent us into recession? You know, we've this this pattern always plays out. Yeah, well, let's remember, if you go back into history, you really have to kind of think about all the events that were going on at the time. If you, the, the, the 2008 experience is called the great financial crisis for a good reason. The, what caused the recession was primarily the collapse in credit markets, the banking system, and the housing market. Oil was kind of a, an add-on to that, certainly added additional pressure. But my view would be that if it had just been higher oil prices and you didn't have all that other those other problems, 
we probably would have coasted through that period with weak growth. So I don't think that proves that oil is this all-encompassing thing that always creates recessions. Recessions usually require a combination of factors, um, and oil is just one of them. Well, Ethan Harris, thank you for your time. Sticking to your call, we appreciate the explanation. Thanks for joining us today. Ethan Harris with Bank of America. And as we go out here, let's get a quick check on markets right here. The Dow was up as much as 500 points earlier this hour. It's only up 43. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.